Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Let's take a look at a very popular, well-known, often quoted Mishnah in Perkeavos. Hillel says, if I am not for me, right, who will be for me? And if I am for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? What in the world does that mean? Everybody quotes it and it sounds profound, but what exactly does it mean? If I am not for myself, who will be? What does that mean? If I don't take care of myself, nobody else will? Is that what it means? If I don't love myself, who will love me? What is this, a Dear Abby letter? What's the great wisdom? And also, why the clumsy wording? If I am not for me, Lee, to me, if I am not to me, there's something going on here that we're missing. Also, the first two phrases, if I am not for me, who will be? If I am for myself, then what am I? It's personal. It's subjective. The third phrase, seemingly out of nowhere, suddenly becomes objective, impersonal, if not now, when? The third thing is this form of of making a statement by asking a question. If I don't love myself, who will? Why don't you just say, a person should love himself. What is the point of saying, so who will? You mean nobody will, right? So say, nobody's going to love you. Why, why put it in the form of a question? It almost sounds whiny. Who's going to love me? Nobody. Can't you face that? <laughs> so just say, if you don't love yourself, nobody else will. Does that hurt too much? If you don't love yourself, who will? And if I am by myself, then what am I? Why don't you just say, if I'm by myself, I'm worthless. Why leave it a question? Make it a positive statement. So, because of all of the above, we need to find a more convincing or a more satisfying take on this Mishnah. And particularly since it's Hillel, one of the earliest of the sages and the first generation and so on. There's got to be some very profound wisdom here. That is not your run-of-the-mill dime store uh, psychology. So let's look at it for a moment. First of all, it's interesting that the word not, im ein, and the word ani, if I am not, so the word for I and the word for not are almost similar are almost alike. Ein is Aleph Yud Nun. Ani is Aleph Nun Yud. So it's the same letters, slightly rearranged. In fact, the word Ani, which means I, is a humble form of the first person pronoun. It is a humble I, because there's the word anochi, which means I, but that's royal. 
Ani is a much more simple, a much more humble identification of self. And why is it that way? What makes Ani a more humble expression? Because it's the same letters as Ain or Ayin, which means nothing. And that's why it is unacceptable for a person to refer to himself as Anoichi. Only God can say that. I am God, you're God. Anoichi Hashem But a human being should not say Anoichi, he should say Ani, because it's a more humble... More specifically, the word Ayin, not Ian, Ayin, refers to the source of Chachma, the source of intelligence. As it is written, the Chachma may Ayin Timotze. Chachma comes out of Ayin, out of nowhere. Because Chachma means a discovery of a new idea. So if it's a new idea, where did it come from? It came out of nowhere. If it's deduced from another idea, then it's not out of nowhere, but then it's not Chachma. So wherever it says Ayin, it's referring to this aspect of intelligence that is humbled by its newness. A moment ago, you didn't know how arrogant can you get. You know, all the, the writers, commentaries, I mean, recent commentaries, not the classical commentaries. People write books. Every Rosh Yeshiva writes a book on you know, his insights and his teachings and so on. Hasidim don't, have not. And uh, people find out that uh, the Hasidic Rosh Yeshiva or the Hasidic rabbi is an immense scholar, and they say, how come you haven't written anything? Nobody knows how great you are. So what do these books consist of? You study a piece of Gemara, and you have a difficulty. Contradiction, the reasoning is not... So you look for an answer. You find the answer. You write it down. Question, answer. That's how you make a book. So this one chassid was asked, you're such a great scholar, how come you don't write? He says, I'm too arrogant to write. That didn't make any sense. You're too arrogant to write a book? He said, yeah. See, because what, what am I going to write? that I didn't understand, and then I figured it out. <laughs> I'm too embarrassed to say that. <laughs> so why should I tell the whole world I didn't understand? And then what if they don't like my answer? Then I'm back to zero again. I don't, I'm too arrogant for that. What he basically meant to say was, what are you writing books? You didn't understand, and you finally figured it out, so shame on you. You have to tell the whole world. So when you discover something new, if it's really a new discovery, like the true geniuses who make revolutionary discoveries, those people are humble. Because when you see the, the idea come out of nowhere, you're humbled by it. It's like seeing a birth. You can only be in awe because it's a miracle. It's miraculous. So when the idea comes from nothing, as brilliant as it is, there's a humbling effect. And that's why Chachma is humble.
another thing about Chachma, which is called Ayin, or Ein. The other thing about Chachma is that it produces great pleasure. The aha of the mind is the highest pleasure that a human being can experience. So a person's capacity for pleasure actually depends on his capacity for Chachma. The more original a person's thinking is, the more pleasure he'll experience. A person who just follows instructions, there isn't that much pleasure. There's satisfaction, contentment, pride, job well done, but there isn't that kind of original pleasure. After Chachma comes Bina. Bina means where you master an idea, you cover the subject from beginning to end, you know every angle, you know every side of it, you've got it all mapped out, you know where it begins, you know where it ends, you know what it's good for, you know what it's not good for, you know where it applies and where it can't apply, and how it applies, and you've got it. It's your subject. You didn't invent it. You didn't discover it. But you mastered it. That's called Bina. In Bina, there are 50 gates, according to Kabbalah. 50 gates of Bina. So Bina comes in 50 shades or 50 approaches. So wherever the number 50 appears, it refers to Bina. Because there are Nun Shari Bina, 50 gates of Bina. So the word me, mem yud in Hebrew, which means who, mem is 40, yud is 10. So the word me refers to bina. So it says, for example, su'u mori menechem, lift your eyes on high, uru'u mi bara'ela, and see who created all this. So Hasidah says, again, it's not an open-ended question. Yeah, duh, who created all this? Why don't you tell me? <laughs> Lift up your eyes and see God who created all this. No, 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 see who created all this. So Hasidah says, it's not a question. Who is not a question. Me refers to Bina. If you lift your eyes upward on high, you will see that Bina created all this. Me, Bara Eile. Me created all this. And what is me? The 50 gates of Bina. If me is Bina, Ma will be Chachma. The word Chachma, Memhei, Ma, Chachma. So Ma is the talent of Chachma. Me is the talent of Bina. So now, im ein anili, if the I, my, my identity, the me, the I, if I am humble, so im ein anili, if I have a humble I, not if I am not for myself, if myself is a humble I, then nili then I have Bina. So if I have the, the humility of Chachma, 
Then I will have Bina. Then me, Lee. Then Bina is mine. And I got it. So, if I start off with a humble Chachma, then I will have Bina. Then I will understand, I will grasp, I will master the subject. Usually when you master a subject, you get to be a little arrogant again. But if you start off with humility and then move on to the Bina, the Bina will not make you arrogant. And that's the difference between holy subjects, Torah subjects, and secular subjects. In the secular subject, there is no Chachma. There is Bina. The sciences, the uh, technology... It's not Chachma, it's Bina. And that's why mastering a secular subject makes people arrogant. Whereas Torah, Torah all begins with Chachma. Torah came down from heaven. You can't be arrogant about this. It came out of nowhere. It's got an ayin. The Torah begins with a base, not with an aleph. Aleph would be ayin. Bays is Bina. So the Torah begins with the Bays, because the Ayin you don't get. So you start with Bays and you're starting off humble. So if you have the humility at the start, the humility of, of Chachma, then the Bina is kosher. doesn't make you arrogant. As it says in, uh, in Tehillim, it says, Ulirosha Omar, to the wicked, God says, Malachol Saper Chukai. What business do you have studying my laws? I mean, if a guy is wicked, you hope that at least he'll study, he'll get to know, he'll get better. Why would you refuse a wicked person the study of Torah? To the wicked, God says, Malacha. First, have a little humility, then study my Torah. Otherwise, it won't bring you closer, it'll only make you more arrogant. So begin with a little humility. And there's a story, times of the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe attracted the greatest scholars of all of Russia, Lithuania, because of his own great scholarship. There was one young man who was a genius and he came to study with the Rebbe. Now his father, the kid's father, was a very humble, very sincere, very down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. And he, and he watched his son become a scholar and watched his arrogance go through the roof. And he couldn't take it. His honesty, his, his simplicity, he couldn't tolerate it. So he came to the Rebbe and he said, I, I, don't, I don't know whether, I don't know if I should be happy or, you know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I like the fact that he's learning and he knows so much, but on the other hand, what is he becoming? What's he turning into? He's arrogant. So the Rebbe said, uh, why don't you call him in? We'll see what we can do. <laughs> Calls him in, and the Rebbe says to him, which Gemara are you studying right now, presently? He tells him. He says, on page such and such, the Rebbe says, on page such and such, there's a commentary in the Tesvus that uh, makes the argument uh, and 
it's very difficult to understand, isn't it? Because of what, you know, these following reasons, hard to understand what it says. And the Rebbe gives him a really good question on the... And he says to the boy, that's a good question, no? The boy says, yeah. The Rebbe says, no, it's not. And he gives him the answer. And he removes the question completely. And the boy is really impressed. So the Rebbe says, that's the answer. That's a good answer. And the guy says, very good. He says, no, it's not. And he shows him how the answer doesn't work at all. doesn't make any sense. And he asks a question on the answer. The guy is amazed. Wow, yeah. The Rebbe says, right, it's a good question, right? He says, yeah. The Rebbe says, no, it's not. And after doing this four times, this poor guy, like his ego was on the floor. So the Rebbe says to the father, what is it? You told me that he knows how to learn. What? I tell him it's a question. He says, yeah. I tell him it's an answer. He says, yeah. He's got a lot to learn. And the guy went out there, <laughs> cut down to size. But he became a real mensch, this guy. And he was a scholar. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't the Alter Rebbe, but he was. And years later, the Alter Rebbe called him in. From all the students, the Alter Rebbe called him in, and he said to him, I want to show you something amazing. And he opened up the Gemara to a certain place. There's a commentary of one of the early commentators called uh, Mordechai. It's a very small column on the outer margins of the Gemara page. And uh, there's a comment there on how, the, how the, the Mordechai understood that piece of Gemara. So the Rebbe says to him, you're familiar with this? He says, oh, that difficult piece of, of Mordechai, of, of, of the commentary. Yeah, everybody knows it's okay. really difficult because it, it seems so forced. So the Rebbe says, do you have a better way to explain the Gemara than this commentary? He says, I have a few ways that, makes, that, that fits easier, it sounds better, it, it's more, it's a straight, and four ways of explaining the Gemara that seemed more reasonable than the commentary. So the Rebbe said, that's good, and gave him six more. Six more ways of explaining, they, and they all seem to be more reasonable than the commentary. So then the Rebbe says, so let me show you something. One by one, the Rebbe eliminated their explanations as unacceptable. The only possible interpretation is the one that the commentary gives. He says, now here's what I want to tell you. Do you think that the Mordechai went through all our ten explanations, discarded each one, and finally came to his conclusion? No. He understood the Gemara the right way, right from the start. And that's the difference between the early commentaries and later commentaries. They went straight for the truth. They were not confused. And anyway, so we see from this that to the wicked, God says, Malicha, first have a little humility that comes from Chachma. Then you can study, study my Torah. Otherwise, and you become more and more arrogant, you're getting further and further away from the Torah. Okay, so that's the meaning of im nanili, if my if the I, if the ani can also be reversed and, and be a ayin, a nothing, 
our humility, then mili, then I can proceed to the study of Torah, to the bina, to mastering the subject, which explains a very important thing. How in the world can you ask a student, on the one hand, to be humble, and on the other hand, to be a scholar? Come on, make up your mind. If you're going to encourage mastering the subject, if you're going to encourage being a scholar, what kind of humility are you expecting? And if the person is humble, then he won't be so ambitious to become a scholar. So there's actually, in many schools, there's the uh, purposeful, intentional creation of competition among students. Who is smarter? Who asks the better questions? Who gets to sit in front of the class? Who will be called a scholar and a Talmud Chacham? And an arrogance fuels the whole thing. But again, you really should be humble. But what? How, do, how is this going to work? So this is what the mission is saying. Yes, you're supposed to be a scholar. Hillel was a scholar. But how did that not affect his arrogance? Or his humility. Because Hillel was humble. That's what he was famous for. So, how does it happen? Hillel is the personification of humility. And when he disagrees with Shammai, who might have been a greater scholar than him, yet the halacha always follows Hillel. So there was no compromise in his scholarship because of his humility. And there was no compromise of his humility because of his scholarship. So how does that work? So Hillel tells us, Im nili, then mili. If you start off with the humility of Chachma, then you can be a scholar. And it'll be good, not bad. But that's not even the end. You've got to go up higher. Higher is, Kisha'ani atzmi. When I get to my essence, atzmi means myself, or it means my essence, etzem. Kishanila atzmi, when I go up higher and I get to the essence, then mo'ani, then I can bring divine wisdom down to my level. So first I raise myself to the wisdom of Torah. Then when I get to the essence, I bring that down to my level. So again, kisha'ani atzmi, when I get to my essence, then mo'ani, then I bring the wisdom down to me. I become it. What is the point of all of it? What is the purpose of all of learning? purpose of all of learning is to bring it down to the world, to affect the world indeed, in fact, not to have your head in the clouds. And therefore, im achshav, achshav means now, in the literal, simple meaning. But it also means the present state not just time, but condition. So, Imlay Achshav, Emosai. The first Mishnah 
says, Eimosai Korim Eshma. When do we read the Shema? And Hasidus says, the word Eimosai, which means when, also means fear. Like Eima, trembling. So Eimosai means with fear we read the Shema. Eimosai Korim Es Hashma. Not when do we read it, we read it with fear. So in this case also, if I reach my essence and I bring the wisdom down to my level, then in the present state, I can experience this fear of God. What does that mean? It says, in another place in the mission, he whose wisdom precedes his fear then his wisdom will not last. He whose fear of heaven precedes his wisdom, then his wisdom will last. If there's no fear, then there is no wisdom. But on the other hand, if there is no wisdom, there is no fear. So, how do you begin? So what Hillel is saying is this. If I start off with a reasonable amount of humility, because if there's no fear, there'll be no wisdom. So I start off with the humility, which is fear. If I start off with the humility of Chachma, then I will go on to the Bina and I will have wisdom. But that's a minimal fear, which brings to a reasonable amount of wisdom. But if I go to the essence, the next step then, then I go to the essence. And then I get a wisdom that brings fear. So first the fear brings wisdom, and then true wisdom will bring fear. But this fear is not ayin. This fear is ema. It's a whole different kind of fear. It's called the higher level. Yira ilah, the higher level of fear. So now all of a sudden, this simple little statement about, you know, i got to love myself before anybody else will love me? <laughs> no. No. This is a thumbnail sketch of the cosmic picture of where you begin your relationship with God and where it goes and how it goes and where you end up. So every yeshiva student has to have this hanging on his wall. It's the road map. To use an unpopular... Uh, <laughs> It tells you how to proceed. It tells you where you need to end up. It tells you what the proper place of humility is and where wisdom comes in. And Come on, it's the whole thing. And it's not common wisdom. It's Pirkei Avos. So let's give it another look. Before you start studying Torah, and of course, why do you start studying Torah? Because you want to know. So you're an intelligent creature. Only intelligent creatures want to know. So if you want to know and you want to study, obviously, you're intelligent. But you want to know Torah. So the first thing is that you have to appreciate the nature of the subject you're about to study. First, know what you're approaching. 
If you know that you're approaching Torah, then you have to feel humility. It's like, literally, coming before God and saying, so, uh, so what do you think? You really want to know what God thinks? You sure you want to know? <laughs> you sure you want to hear it? Because you may. And if you hear it, will you faint? Will you be overcome? So what do you mean you're asking God what he thinks? If you realize that that's what you're doing, then even though your motivation is intelligence, your experience is humility. Otherwise, you won't understand the Torah because you don't know what it is. So if you come to Torah thinking, oh, I heard there's great wisdom. So you open it up and it says, if I am not for me, then who will be? You say, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, if you don't love yourself, you're not studying Torah. You don't know what you're doing. You're not getting it. You're not getting any wiser. And you're becoming more arrogant. So if you don't know the nature of the subject, then there will be no wisdom either. So if you don't begin with a little humility, what are you going to know? You're not going to know anything. We are just reading during Shabbos. We were reading um, the, the story of Elisha, who gives a woman a blessing that she's going to have a child. The child grows up, dies, the mother comes crying to Elisha. Elisha comes to the house and resurrects the dead child. How does he do it? He breathes into him. Seven times, whatever. The art scroll commentary summarizes the story and says, uh, the moral of the story is that those who want to infuse their students with life have to give of themselves. Only through devotion can you affect another person. Oh my goodness. How lame. Like this is divine wisdom? Or is this uh, particularly the man resurrected a dead child. All you can come away with is to be a good teacher you really got to devote yourself and to be a good carpenter <laughs> and to be a it's just it's lame it's, a, it's an insult to your intelligence I'm sure that any person reading the Torah for the first time said he what he resurrected a dead child by breathing on him where's the commentary he looks down at the commentary and it says yeah if you want to really affect children you have to give that's not what I need to hear. I need to know, how did he do it? <laughs> he resurrected a dead child? And you have nothing to say about that? There's another story there, where this woman had no money to pay her bills, so she came to Elisha, and he performed a miracle, and her oil just... Her, she got rich on oil, and she was able to pay her bills. What is the commentary? A woman in need and nobody in the community would help her. So she goes to the prophet of the generation, and he cares enough to help her. I can't, I can't believe this stuff. First of all, 
Where in the world does it say that she went to everybody else and nobody would help her? Where do you get that from? It was a time of war. Israel was at war with Syria. Surprise, surprise. And they were losing. There was hunger. People were dying in the streets. What do you mean nobody would help her? And Elisha's greatness is he cared. Come on. If you don't start off with an awareness of what it is you're studying, you don't get it. You'll misunderstand. On the other hand, this guy, uh, this guy tells me he took philosophy in college. Now he's, uh, he's a very wealthy businessman. But he took philosophy in college. And he says, you've got to know what philosophy is. So his professor opened the semester. He said, uh, okay, we're going to be studying philosophy. And let me give you a heads up as to what exactly we're going to be doing. He says, this guy traveled long distance to India, and he found his way up a mountain to a famous guru. And he said to the guru, Master, what is life? And the guru said, life is like a river. And the man said, really? How is life like a river? So the guru said, okay, so it's not like a river. (laughs) That was his introduction to a course in philosophy. I am going to tell you what life is all about. Then again, maybe it's not. That's philosophy. <laughs> You've got to know the subject so that you can approach it with the proper awe <laughs> or lack of. Before you study Torah, you've got to have somebody say to you, you know what Torah is all about? Torah is like asking God, so what do you think? If you could ask God, what do you think? How would you ask? Or would you dare? So when we approach Torah with that humility, simply the awareness of of what you're about to engage in, then the wisdom works. Then you get to the Bina. But the truth is that that's not the whole story. That's not the essence. The essence is, and when you reach the essence, you realize that it's not about obtaining wisdom. It's about introducing God to the world. Why? Because that's what he wants. So when he asks us to study his Torah, when he comes along and says, let me tell you what I think, why does he do that? So that you can be a scholar? not even with your humility. So even studying Torah with humility, you then have to ask yourself, what's in it for God? Why does he make himself, why does he talk to me? Why does he answer my questions? Because I want to know. It's not about me. It's about him. And I realize God is making himself available to me, then it's not humble anymore. Then it's awe. Then it's frightening. Then I serve God with proper awe.
So in loy achshav, if I don't think about the here and now, which means myself, I know, I don't know, I want to know. If I don't think about the here and now, then I get to the real Amosai. This is somewhat similar to the three stages of all your heart, all your soul, all your might. What is this thing, all your might? You already gave up your heart and soul. What have you got left? So the Gemara says, the Gemara says, all your might means your money. Because people might be willing to give up their heart and soul, but they're not willing to give up their money. That's already too advanced a stage. So you have to give up your heart. That's not easy. You have to give up your soul. That's not easy. You even have to give up your money, which is the hardest of all. The Rebbe explains, giving up your heart means giving up your wants. I love this, I hate that, I like this, I don't like that. Give all that up. Stop it. Stop living through your own reality. Because there's a bigger reality. The bigger reality is, you got to do what you got to do. You can't live by your feelings. But then there's a higher step. Serve God with your soul. And that means with your life even if it costs you your life, not just your feelings, your life. In other words, your very existence. Because if you perceive reality through the filter of your existence, you're not getting a real picture. B'chol me'edecha means you serve God with all your might beyond your life, and that is not a filter at all. So it works like this. Are we, in fact, capable of seeing reality? Or are we trapped? We stand behind the camera and we can only see what comes through the lens. Is that the case? we can actually see reality or truth. How can you see truth if you're the observer and you're not true? So even scientists grapple with this question. Every observation, every discovery, they discovered photons, uh, what are the new things? Quarks. Really? You sure you're not imagining it? Yeah, this goes here, this goes there. That's what you've noticed. You sure this goes here and that goes there? Maybe if you watch a little longer, they'll go the other way. So is this, is, you see a pattern. What's a pattern? Is a pattern the behavior of the thing? Or is it just the way your mind likes to organize stuff? So scientists have this problem, or physicists have this problem with, are you seeing what's there or are you seeing what you want to see? what makes sense to you. Because technically, we see everything upside down. But we don't like it. A pyramid can't stand on its point. So we flip it. Are we doing this with everything? 
We don't like the way it looks, so we turn it over. So now how does it really look? Oh, I don't know. If that's a problem with scientific, physical phenomenon, imagine what we can do with abstract thought. God said, God did, he didn't. Well, maybe, I thought he said. I think someplace the previous Rebbe writes that the thing that impresses him most about the story of the Akedah, God tells Avram to sacrifice his son and Avram goes to do it. What impressed him the most was not Avram's willingness or Yitzchak's willingness. What impressed him the most is that when God said to Avraham, sacrifice your son, Avraham was sure that that's what he heard. That that's very impressive, because thou shalt not kill. Are you sure God said? How could he be that sure? That's impressive. Because when God speaks, you know, you can play little games in your head and say, I mean that. I mean, he couldn't have meant that. No, he meant something else. And Avram heard. And he was confident enough that he was ready to do something that's completely counterintuitive. So what does me'idecha mean? Me'idecha means... If you really put yourself aside, not only your feelings, but also your life, then you can see reality. It's not impossible, as most people would assume. As long as you are you, then what you see is not reality. It's just you. Torah says it is possible to put yourself aside to the degree of me'aydecha, and on that level, you see things as they are. And that's awe-inspiring. That's a Masai. So if I can get past the achshav, which means what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, the reality of now, then I will see the reality as it is. And that's a Masai. That is awesome then it's not me being humble. <laughs> it's not me anymore. It's it. I am seeing it. I'm seeing the truth. That's how you become a student. What happens after that? Oh boy. Hillel was telling a student how to... <laughs> In a sense, Hillel was saying, this is what it'll take for you to be accepted in my yeshiva. Then we'll learn. And the same applies to every relationship. The first step in any connection between two people is you have to put your heart aside. You can't love your way into a relationship. Because if you do, you have no idea who you're related to. The person is simply the object of your love. You've created them in your image. You're not seeing the other person. So you've got to get past your heart. And you've got to give your life to the relationship. Your whole existence. 
if you give your entire existence, then you can see the other person more clearly, but still not perfectly. Then you go a third step. The third step is, it doesn't matter whether I give my heart or I give my soul. It's not about me. It's not about me being at my best. It's not about me at all. Not even my best. Not even my most. Then what is it about? It's about you. Well, that's scary. Now you're in awe. Now you've gotten to the Amosai. And why is it so hard for people to do that? I'll give you my heart. I'll give you my life. Now do you see how good I am? What, that's not good enough? No, it's not good enough because it's not about you. Nobody asked you how good you are. It's not about you. Really? And what is it about? It's like, oh, then what is it about? You mean, I don't know what it's about? Here I am at my best, and I don't know what it's about? What are you telling me? I give my life, and I don't know what it's about? You're giving your life. Stop it. God doesn't ask for martyrdom. He doesn't ask you to give your life. God is saying, I need something. Don't throw your life at me. Listen to what I need. Sometimes I'll I'll ask you to give up your life. Sometimes not. Don't just throw your life at me and think you're, you're done. So if a person says to God, you know what? I will serve you if it kills me. And God says, and if it doesn't? Then you're on vacation? (laughs) What what are you making these conditions with me? Just listen to what I need. Oh, but I'm so devoted, I'll die for you. Did I ask you to die? What are you making up the agenda? Let me make up the agenda. That's b'chol ma'idecha. That's when you get past your own virtues. And you can really see clearly. So, when a man comes for marriage counseling, and he says, look, I am committed, you heard people speak like this, I am committed to this marriage. I mean, I'm not the type that gets into a relationship just to have it end. I'm in this for the long haul. I'm committed. I am dedicated to this marriage. I will do whatever it takes. If it kills me, I am going to do. Now, what does she want? (laughs) You're You're such a loser. Why don't you start with, what does she want? And save the speech. What do you give me this whole speech about where you're at? What about her? Yeah, right. Yeah, what does she want? You haven't even thought... (laughs) You You see what's wrong with that? After I become the master of my soul, and after I convince you that I am willing to give my life, Now, uh, yeah, what does she want? Now, you're asking what she wants? Or better yet, the guy says, I'm willing to do anything. I will go to the ends of the earth to make this thing work. 
but I just don't know how to get her to whatever. You don't know how to get her to do you a favor, but you're going to die for the relationship? I don't think so. <laughs> you're not focused on her at all. You keep focusing on yourself. But I'm willing to die for this. Yeah, but she doesn't want you to die. So what good is that? Well, you know, if that kind of devotion is not good enough, then I'm sorry. Well, you are sorry. But we're afraid. We're afraid of seeing the truth without a lens. This comedian says, they put these pictures of criminals up on the, the post office. They put up pictures of the criminals. And they ask you <laughs> to watch out for them, to catch them. He says, I don't know, what am, exactly what am I supposed to do? I see the picture. I look at the guy behind me online. It's not him, so what else do you want from me? On the other hand, he says, whoever took that picture, why didn't he grab him? <laughs> don't stand there behind the camera. Come out from behind the camera and grab the guy. No, won't come out from behind the camera. See, that's why they always have a frontal shot and a profile shot. The frontal shot is when he was standing in front of the camera, and the profile is when he was walking away. Don't let him walk away. Grab him. <laughs> but we don't come out from behind the camera. We don't want to see a criminal really. So we'll look at him only through our lens, not really. And we do this with our, with our best friends. We do this with our children, with our spouses, with our... I'll, I see you the way I see you. And I really am devoted to who? You don't even want to look at me straight. You can't even see me. What are you devoting yourself to? And that's why all your heart and all your soul may not be enough. You're willing, you're generous, you're sacrificing. To whom? What's her name? You know her name? This woman you're willing to die for? And you haven't yet asked her what she wants? You need the miyadecha. So once again, a simple Mishnah becomes cosmic. <laughs>